0: You know, one of the most exciting things about working with Gun.io is I get to work with some of the most important consumer brands and fitness brands and enterprise brands. And what you find is that they're all looking for the very best talent and they're competing for it. And one thing I tell clients all the time is that, hey, you know, if you can develop um, the mindset to, to hire remote freelance engineers, what you're going to find is that it opens up the pool of available talent because... You're not going to have to fight over the same group of FTEs from all the other companies in your space. And so now what we can do is bring you a cohort of people that other companies aren't competing with you against. And it's really a competitive advantage to take stock of that and find some excellent people you can bring on board. This is the Frontier Podcast powered by Gun.io the engineer's choice for engineering talent.
1: If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe, and follow us on Twitter at The Frontier
0: Pod. Who is Christy D'Ambrosio Corral? Uh,
1: Let's see, Um, we'll start off with the hardest question. You know that, right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think at my most basic, I'm an engineer, um, which has sort of been a theme uh, throughout my experience as a leader and as a manager. Um, and uh, now in my role as a VP. Um, and so I sort of always make sure that I go back to my engineering roots, uh, the things that I hold most dear, um, you know, how to solve problems and, uh, and how to um, navigate challenging situations all comes from my experience as an engineer. Um, so I think, yeah, my most basic, um, I am an engineer, I still love to engineer. Um, and um, I think that that's just been a uh, part of my ethos.
0: Cool. Excellent. Um, so you're a trained uh, MIT engineer, uh, got your bachelor's and your master's from there. And in 2011, you wrote a paper called um, or titled Fiber Optics for Harsh Environments. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Um, actually, I titled a number of papers uh, during that time. Um, that one, <laughs> the only reason I bring that up is because that one, um, I was actually a co-author on that one. Um got my it. Um, was more in um, algorithm development, and so I also have a paper um, which you may have found, but may not have understood the title, um, which is,
2: um, <laughs> <Like> <laughs> is
1: very long <laughs> um, and really uh, kind of obsolete. Um, it's not a, it's not super um, obvious what it would be, but um, it's more about um, advanced computation methods for um, electromagnetic. Um, Uh, modeling, which is something that's done quite a lot in the aerospace industry, Um, trying to determine the radar signature of a plane um, or another object. And that computation can actually take um, a long time. Um, And so I spent uh, the better part of um, most three years, I guess, um, including the year that I did my master's. doing work in that space. And I ended up, uh, my thesis uh, was around that work. So um, it was around uh, generating a new um, technique, um, leveraging um, some other researchers' uh, mathematical techniques called compressive sensing, uh, which is basically a sampling method. Um, And basically you you subsample um, and it allows you to um, do the computation faster and then with a fancy extrapolation method go back into what it would have looked like before you had sampled. Mm. Um, And so the the punchline of all of that, (laughs) uh, which is the important part, um, is that by the end um, of my work, we were able to take a – a model that would normally have taken about eight days to have its computation run, um, it ran in just under eight hours. Um, and so that was sort of the um, culmination of about three years mm. of work um, and was the focus of my um, research and uh, thesis, my master's thesis. And-
0: mm. Could you describe sort of the path your interests took um, over the last like, decade let's say mm-hmm. because you know you studied so you know looked at your thesis didn't quite understand what your thesis was about um, but you know um, I think we can get into that for sure because our audience is fairly technical although not not um, electrical engineers mainly like software engineers but yeah. you know there's this little bit of overlap um, so yeah we I mean I would love to kind of know how um, The path you took, like why you took the path you took, let's say, Um, and sort of, you know, um, how you got into perhaps building software companies. Now you're at Mirror, um, which is sort of a hardware Mm -hmm. software company. Um, Right. Um, So yeah, love to know.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a great question. Um, So, yeah, as you may have noticed, um, my background, uh, my my education um, was sort of a bit of both. Um, For background, MIT actually um, does consider electrical and computer engineering um, one class, Uh, (laughs) like one school of thought, almost. um, part of my study was actually on on both sides of the house, hardware and software. Um, one of the things they talk about is just that you know you shouldn't you shouldn't code the computer if you don't know how to build it first. And so we did, we did do a lot of um, electrical work that that went along um, with our computer work. I was primarily a computer engineer though, um, and so my my background is really in algorithm development, um, a little bit of machine learning and data science um, towards the latter part of my education, um, and uh, much heavier on the um, computer side of the house. And so when I came out of school, um, I went right into um, a defense contractor job. i had been working there um, through my years at school. And uh, obviously, as you heard, I uh, did quite a bit of research at that time, published quite a number of papers, um, and, and uh, presented a number of conferences, um, and so that was really um, my R&D phase of life, <laughs> where I lived in, you know, a slightly different world than I do now, um, definitely more in the research and development um, it, that was more my wheelhouse, um, and I had some great mentors um, who really lived in that space for quite some time. Um, during that time, because I also had an education in electrical engineering, I was able to contribute to that side. And um, so I was able to help develop algorithms an understanding of how radars um, you know, worked and how electrical um, modeling might work, how EM modeling might work. So... Um, and to that end, I was sort of able to keep, you know, a half foot in the uh, in the hardware world while I developed my software skills. Um, yeah. After a couple of years, um, it became pretty obvious to me that the world—I guess it was right around 2000. And- Ooh, I'm trying to think, 2012, 2000, yeah, 2012, I guess, um, 2013. Um, there was a lot of activity um, in New York at the time, and obviously, you know, all over the country in startups. And um, it became very obvious that there was a lot going on elsewhere. And I kind of wanted to see what that world was like, and what the world of startups was like. And that was much more of a traditional um, software developer um, kind of world, and not necessarily a software. Uh-huh. An engineer.
0: Exactly. Um, yeah. Two,
1: two slightly different things um, yes <laughs> I'm sure that your audience could debate that all day long um, but <laughs> I definitely see myself as more of a traditional engineer as opposed to a developer um, but I wanted to try my hat um, in in engineering and uh, sorry in development and so hopped into a fresh startup um, as a back-end developer building APIs um, just like any other good <laughs> engineer would do right. um, <laughs> and um, quickly found that it was um You know, it was a lot of fun. It was fast-paced. It was great Um, and uh, built quite a reputation uh, within the startups that I was working for. Um, And so that became... um, something I was comfortable with and something that uh, I gained a lot of knowledge with and a place I was able to grow my leadership experience. And so at that time, um, I sort of went from API development, um, learning the ins and outs of web technology, um, which was a whole new world to me, um, and then um, also in the ins and outs of web um, uh, what we call SRE, uh, site reliability, uh, really 24/7 maintenance of a of a global system, a global platform, um, and and what that looks like. And I became very passionate about you know all things um, uh, all things SRE, all things um, you know stability, um, and it really led me to a place of leadership um, at that particular company, uh, which was excellent. So I was able to get a lot of experience and a lot of uh, you know great mentorship at that company, um, and then went on to um, to do a, a bit of consulting uh, with a couple of other startups um, for a number of years. Um, at that time, uh, we're talking like 2016 or so, um, we had a lot of startups popping up um, in New York that were IoT startups, and yeah. IoT was uh, just really starting to become something that was mainstream and, and accepted um, it was like the heyday of Nest, um, and they were you know, sort of one of the pioneers in that space. Um, and so I, uh, with my electrical background, um, it just became very obvious that it was a great place for me, um, and so I started doing a lot of consulting for firms um, that needed um, you know, IoT products built, and so I started doing that, and that was how I uh, met our CEO, Bryn, um, and uh, sort of became part of the mirror team. And uh, it was just sort of a culmination of my, um, experience in software and my experience in web and then sort of, um, the combination of my, my electrical knowledge, um, that really made this a perfect fit for me.
0: Mm. You know, I'm curious to kind of hear, um, uh, maybe like what were your, what did you think perhaps like the early stage startup ecosystem was like, or going to be like, and mm-hmm. then how did that m- m- sort of meet, um, Against the reality of of working in that in that world, because you know two thousand and twelve was sort of like the beginning of the second golden age of venture capitalization. I think yeah. that was the time that like Facebook was going public, I think Groupon was you know like there were a lot of big tech liquidity events um, so I would love to kind of hear more about that.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know that I had, like, huge expectations. I just knew that I wanted to be in that world. Um, yeah. And I didn't want to not know what that was Yeah, like. yeah. Um, and so I found a startup that sounded exciting um, and, you know, a group of leaders, a CEO and a CTO who really sold me on that vision um, for the product and the company. Um, and I sort of fell into what most people fall into, which is, you know, a startup that they're really passionate about yeah. um, and, and a team they're really passionate about. And, you know, you work hard um, and, and, uh, you know build something that you're proud of so i think it it met my expectations um you know i think that it was um just something that i didn't know anything about so um i didn't i hadn't done you know this is before you know silicon valley tv show
2: <laughs>
1: it was before you know we sort of had like a theatrical version of what this world yeah might be yeah like. um and so it was more just you know what what is this world who are these people Um, and so it was my first experience with a set of co-founders which is very interesting um, and specifically co-founders who are also visionaries right Sometimes there are co-founders that are not and they're purely execution and this was, this was an idea that they think could make money. Um, and then you have co-founders who are sort of like, this is my being, this is who I am, this is right. my, my bread and butter um, and it's everything about them. Um, and so that was my first experience with a, a CEO and a CTO where it was, it was their you know, emotional baby, so to speak, um, right. that they were investing in um, and all of those things, um, having two co-founders, um, you know, to sort of see what that relationship is like. Obviously, you've heard the stories, you know, at Facebook and you know Google and all those great things <laughs> about co-founder relationships. Um, and so it was it was cool to be able to see that, and you know, sometimes be good, sometimes be bad, but still see it be a relationship um, and like what that means. And then also really interesting to see a, a visionary um, sort of. Do what they do um, and how to work within that space. And I just learned a lot about how to work in a startup there, um, and they were a fast-growing startup. They actually um, were able to exit pretty, um, pretty well, just uh, like a year or so ago, I think. Um, and uh, you know, they they had their journey, so it was awesome. you know, would say it was a you know off the chart success story, but it was their journey and it was a good journey. Um, and I still have you know contacts that still work there. So
0: totally. Yeah. yeah. What would you say to yourself? Let's say you know you're 18 years old. You're matriculating at MIT. What advice would you give yourself?
1: Oh boy, that's a hard question. Um, when I left MIT, there it was like also kind of a golden age of consultants mm. uh, and like <laughs> McKinsey, like they were all coming hunting. Yeah. And, and MIT was like prime hunting ground. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of my friends who are engineers turned into consultants. And they're, and they're still consultants to this day. Yeah. Um, and so a part of me at the time was like, I should do that. That's where the money is or that's where it's mm. Um, but I didn't. Um, I I had two routes that I wanted to go. One, I either wanted to go, um, you know, purely government, where I wanted to go NSA um, or CIA, or I wanted right. to go um, back to where I was, which is defense contractor. A lot of personal reasons that I wanted to sort of be in that defense, um, you know, industry. Um, but what I ended up doing was I did, in fact, um, pursue NSA and um, CIA offers. Um, unfortunately, the reason I did not go that route um, was because they didn't want me to actually complete my master's for one year. They wanted me to join right away, and they would not mm-hmm. extend an offer uh, with a one-year contingency. Um, mm-hmm. So I made, like, the very conscious decision, like, that wasn't what I was going to do. Um, but I really, really, truly felt like I wanted to go into the defense industry in some way. and so. Mm-hmm. Um, after a couple of years, I sort of wasn't sure that I'd made the right choice, right? A lot of my friends, you know, went into consulting, a lot went into the startup world, and I was like, did I take the right path, right? Like, did I make the right choice, or should I have gone somewhere else? Um, And so, obviously, I changed my course a little, um, but I think ultimately where I am right now and what I learned about a large company um, like a defense contractor um, seasoned leaders like you find at large corporations um, was incredibly valuable for what I'm doing today Um, and so looking back I don't know that I would have changed anything I would have just said you know don't worry about it. <laughs> like you, you're going to end up where you, where you need to end up anyway um, if you continue to make good choices. Um, and so I don't know that it would change anything, um, but it was definitely, it was, it's hard. It's hard coming right out of school and like not knowing the next direction, not knowing where it's going to lead you. Um, and what I've found specifically since quitting startups um, and sort of doing consulting for quite a while um, is that you kind of have to just be open to new opportunity and you need to be able to say, you know, yes, I'm going to try something, and if it's not right, change directions. But but never be afraid to say yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really what I what I did here at Mirror. Um, you know, Brent and I connected um, actually many many months before I ended up joining her team. Um, and then you know, we just sort of stayed in contact. And when she reached back out asking for me to do con- some consulting work, I was like super busy with a ton of other things, <laughs> that I almost said no. And I was like, you know what, like just. Just take it. It's like an eight-week project, not a big deal. Obviously, it's now turned into <laughs> a big part of my life. <laughs> it's a lot more than eight weeks, obviously. Um, but uh, <laughs> but uh, I think as long as you're open to new opportunities um, and not, you know, closed off to great things that might be coming your way, it doesn't really doesn't really matter. Um, you'll find your way either way.
0: Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, I tend to find that um, like gifted. Gifted engineers tend to have like one of two worldviews. One is like pursue something with extreme conviction, and then the other is sort of preserve optionality um, mm-hmm. and, and preserve the ability to make to make choices. And I tend to find like it's pretty evenly distributed, actually, like mm-hmm. uh, in terms of like the maybe professional cohort, you know, on which side um, their worldview falls. So cool. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so in in doing. In doing some research, uh, I noticed that you don't have a Twitter. Intentional decision?
1: Oh, oh goodness! Um, yeah, yeah, intentional. Um, not I don't know. I'm not a big social media person in general. If you if you've cyberstalked me, you'll notice that my Instagram is also pretty slow
2: uh,
1: <laughs> as of late. Um, and uh, yeah, um, and as is Facebook. Actually, I don't even know the last time I posted on social media. Uh, my social media. Mm-hmm. is is pretty benign pretty quiet um yeah i'm not actually super um like early adopter or like you know really tech forward person which is so Mm. ironic um like i they they all make fun of me here at the office and (laughs) all of your all of your listeners are going to laugh at me, but I do still have an iPhone SE um, (laughs) (laughs) that I will not give up. (laughs) Um, And they're all like, we don't want to develop apps for your phone, because it's too small. (laughs)
2: Um,
1: I'm just, I'm not like a super early adopter. Um, And so for me, like I was, um, Twitter and and Instagram sort of had a battle for a little while, and I was like, I think Instagram's gonna win. And so I made an Instagram, and then (laughs) then just never made a Twitter. And I kind of feel like I made the right call. I don't think I need to be on Twitter. Um, <laughs>
2: but what's
1: really ironic about that is that our CEO, um, when she, she has no social media presence either, um, <laughs> she decided to make one, her choice was to only do Twitter. Mm. So she and I like went the opposite routes. Um, mm. But yeah, no, I just, um, I'm not that big on, you know, posting to social media. It's not my, not my thing. Um. And, uh, and my husband actually has a zero internet presence so um, it's just sort of a funny thing
0: yeah it's um, so um, our co-founder my co-founder Rich he's he's very similar in that he you know like for five years he used like maybe like a first generation, android device with a cracked screen and i was like dude i'll just buy i'll, I'll buy you a new phone it's like personally like i it upsets me to see him walking around with this cracked screen yeah. uh but yeah i think it's just i don't know you know i tend to also think about it like you can either perhaps be like a producer of the technology or a you know perhaps a consumer and um you know we're on the other side so yeah. you know yeah. uh um, I'd I
1: definitely rather make it than
0: buy it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, okay, interesting. So so when it comes to, let's say, people management, um, mm-hmm. are you, you know, what? what's your opinion on, let's say, being an experiential learner versus being a learner, you know, through books and through... Um podcasts and such on how to cultivate and, let's say build a team. Like you know, how do you develop your framework? Um, how did you develop your framework?
1: I think a lot of my I, I mean part of building a team is is sort of combination of you know being a parent and being a teacher kind mm-hmm. of. you take those two paradigms and you combine them with a little bit of like tough love like you basically got like a manager right um and so you know there's there's some aspect of you know how i was taught um part of how i was taught is a lot to do with mit um and mit's motto is you know mind and hand um which is a bit of book learning and a bit of you know do it yourself get messy kind of thing and it's a it's something that's pretty pervasive um, throughout the the Institute, um, which is that, like, we sort of teach you the basics, we teach you the theory, and then you have to go figure out how to apply it and how to make it a reality. Um, and if you can figure it out, great. If you can't, um, you know, you probably aren't going to make it. So, yeah, I mean,
2: there's
1: there's a bit of that um, that definitely like um, is is part of my style, um, and then some of my style is just you know, from what I've experienced as an engineer, um, and like I said, I did start my career in, in a company that was quite large, had a concept of like oh. very senior technical people, You know, it spent 30, 40, 50 years in tech, in tech um, which is something we don't have in the startup world. Um, you're not going to find someone who's spent 60 years developing a plane um, in the startup world, and so, totally. some of my some of my experience and some of, some of what I, I loved about that um, part of my journey is that um, apprenticeship um, and um, learning from experienced elders um, is some of the best ways to learn things like engineering. Um, MIT often. Um, gets made fun of on, um, I don't know if you watch Big Bang Theory, but it um, gets made fun of as being <laughs> like, a, like a trade school. Um, but there's a lot of ways that like engineering and trades are very similar. Um, and I think one of the best ways uh, to create um, really strong, um, deep like knowledge in engineering is actually through a type of apprenticeship.
2: Um, right.
1: You, we do a bit of that as well. And so what I actually have created um, here at Mirror is... Um, my my first round of hires um, were all very very senior people mm. very senior um, to the point where they could sort of put the framework down and sort of lay the foundation um, and work with me to do that and then we fill in mid levels um, and we only fill in so many mid levels that we can handle uh, to train up into seniors uh, We have no junior engineers on staff at the moment. Mm. And that's like a conscious decision. We're still a very, very small team. Um, and the more juniors and mid levels you bring on, the harder it is to teach good practice. All right. Um, so, a, you know, a master at their craft only has so much time to do their craft and teach others. Um, and so, um, sort of our theory has been you need you need to come in with a certain amount of knowledge that can be either from past experience from being self-taught some of my engineers are actually self-taught no formal education um, or from a formal education and um, we do have myself and my mother who are MIT engineers um, and others that you know no education at all so you know it's sort of all you know all of the above can work um, just as long as you come in with some, you know, strong sense of what, um, you know, what good principles are and what good behaviors are, and then we will teach you the rest. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's through, like, apprenticeship, mentorship, um, all of those things. So, um, yeah, I think it's a, just a bit about, you know, how I was taught, and then sort of something that I love looking back on, like the age of, like, Renaissance, um, you know, when when apprenticeships were sort of the way as opposed to, you know, classroom-based, which is what we do now.
0: Right. Um, Right. I tend
1: to... A little bit of my personal uh, philosophy there for you. No, no,
0: we, we, we share that worldview entirely. I mean, there's a huge gap between sort of graduating as a computer scientist and then being able to actually contribute in a production environment. And yeah. uh, there needs to be some mechanism to sort of train up, skill up people to do that. And yeah. it's not just actually, you know, being able to use the tools. Of the trade—it's like literally, you know—I think you perhaps saw this with your first startup. It's like actually learning how to work with a team and manage mm-hmm. personalities and get the resources you need to be able to execute. You know, that's a political Ooh. game and. Ooh. You know, yeah, so. I mean,
1: you'll, you'll hear most common frustrations out of young engineers or engineers that have often just taught themselves to code, um, who are just coming out of school, is they they really are frustrated by um, code reviews.
0: <laughs> yeah, why is that, really?
1: <laughs> yeah, because because a really good code review is going to basically go line by line and be like, mm. nope, this doesn't, you know, this could do this, or you know, this doesn't meet this style standard that we have, or um, you know, hey, you forgot about this dependency that you might want to include, or hey, you forgot to. Unit tests that like we mm. um, and you get a lot of feedback when you're a new engineer in the real world in your code reviews and you thought you were done with everything and then you
0: realize
1: right. like three more times
0: right
1: <laughs> it's so frustrating um, but you know that's one of the things that I think really sets apart you know great engineers is um, from you know just average engineers is being able to digest that deal right. with. It, um, and then learn from it and then be able to turn around and do it for the next guy. Um, not in a way that's retaliatory, but just in a way that like we all are working towards the same goal, um, yep. especially in a common code base where you want it to look like one person and one brain broke the whole thing.
0: Right. Yeah. And you mm-hmm. want to sort of philosophy of iron sharpens iron, you know, yeah, exactly. um, across the team. Um so how did, you, how did you guys devise the strategy of, let's say, hiring seniors then mid-levels? Is this something that you've seen before or you just sort of intuited no, that that was the right approach?
1: <laughs> yeah, this is just... Interesting. Um, like, I mean, huh. when I joined the team, we were in a very different place. We actually didn't have a lot of um, full-time engineers. The company was transitioning from that prototype stage um, where we sort of had people who could hack a product together um, into a stage where we were actually productionizing the product. and. Mm. Um, Creating something we could produce at scale, um, so that's the hardware and the software, mm. right? Um, and so I sort of came in right in that transition period when we were going from people who, you know, new prototype to new production, and mm. and production was my experience. Um, I can prototype, but that's like not what I love to do. Mm. So um, you know, what we really had to do is sort of transition people away from the the philosophy of prototype, um, and when
0: right. we
1: you when you're in a startup that has no get no customers yet, and you're sort of pre-launch, um, right? It's so nice because <laughs> <'cause laughs> no one cares. <laughs> you know, you something and no one cares. <laughs> you have no customers yet, and so it was sort of like changing the methodology. Right. Um, that, and so we went from a lot of contractors um, to a lot of full times. Yeah. And hiring those full times, it's like okay, we need a full-time, you know, for each of our silos. Keep in mind that Mirror is very unique in that we have server, um, you know, like basically classic web-based API people. We have iOS engineers. We have Android app developers. And we have um, Mirror platform developers, um, which are anywhere from, you know, low-level Linux developers that can update my kernel, my bootloader when I need, or <laughs> um, or can do Android, um, which is what the, the Mirror actually runs. Mm. And um, so you've got a lot of different expertise. And so what we looked for was really people in each of those silos that were excellent at what they do, um, and then basically built a team around them. Mm. Um, and so, you know, each of my team leads um, has, you know, a decade or more of experience um, in their particular silo. Um, and they're, they're just my leads, right? They're not my directors, they my VPs, they're my leads. And they spend 75% of their time writing code, the other 25%, you know, mentoring their team members that are anything from mid-levels to seniors um, to, you know, to staff engineers.
0: Mm-hmm. Did, uh, did you give them the space to hire their own teammates? Uh, first question. Second question is, um, you know, I'm curious to see how maybe the way that you've organized engineering, um, is similar or dissimilar to the other ways, other, um, let's say departments in your company organized. And how did you kind of get that political capital to sort of build the team, how you'd like
1: Two big questions there. Uh, yeah. So first one, um, <laughs> did, I, did I let them pick their own team members? Um, I think this is a loaded question. Uh, one, because um, I don't think it's required of a middle manager, basically a team lead, to go you know, on hired or talk with recruiters and like define job requirements, define mm. you know all the stuff that like goes with the actual people management of hiring. Like, a, actually, most of my engineers are not from this country, and so we have a lot of visa paperwork. Um, we, have, we have a lot of like complicated stuff that goes into the hiring process. Right, that, for me is not something I want them to have to handle. Um, that's something for like people ops. Uh, me, when I have to. Um, right attorneys <laughs> all that stuff um and so so that's all the stuff that i i want them to worry about um so i do all of the back of the house sort of logistics around hiring
2: uh-huh. as soon
1: as we get people into the funnel the entire team contributes to whether or not they want those people on the team uh-huh. and so my seniors 100 my my leads 100 percent Um, helped interview and choose who was going to be on their team. Um, And even to this day, like I had uh, an engineer start last week and I had two starting in, you know, another couple of weeks. Um, The entire team basically came together and decided who they wanted to be the next additions. Mm. Um, And so that's not something that I would ever do unilaterally. Um, It's definitely something that, like, my leads need to be a part of. And even the regular engineers, senior and mid level engineers on the team need to be a part of um, because – you know, regardless of their their level, they're going to have to work with everyone. So we want yeah. that um, to always work. And uh, typically, I'll actually have someone from other team, contrib- from another team, um, talk to the potential engineer uh, to make sure that they fit cross functionally as well. Um, so hopefully, it answers that question.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
1: I I do know that at some places it is required of team leads to sort of handle everything around hiring for their team. Um, so. It's just not something I do. It's just a lot of overhead. Um, in terms of how did I gain political capital to sort of structure the team the way I had, have, we haven't even gotten to the most interesting way that I've structured my team, which is that um, I actually also run product. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> which every engineer is like, ooh, that's so nice.
2: <laughs> um,
1: so I actually have PMs that report to me, and um, and product designers that report to me, um, and mm. this allows me to be very flexible in how we handle um, stability work and reliability work, um, which is obviously one of my passions, yeah. um, along with new feature development. Um, and the political capital really comes from you know many many months of sort of being able to. Uh, Prove that when I commit to something I deliver on a time frame I commit to Uh
2: Um,
1: And so that's basically the biggest I think the biggest downfall of most engineers is they often um, Say they're going to do it in either Too short a time and they fall you know They fall short and end up um, going over which is super frustrating for um, the rest of the company or um, They sort of rush to it and it goes out in poor quality Uh so one of those two things tends to happen. Um, one of the things that I've spent a lifetime perfecting is being on time, perfectly on right. time. Um, right. And so, early on uh, when I actually joined Mirror, um, one, of my first, one of the first requests Bryn had of me was, how long will it take us to launch? Um, the prototype team just could not figure out how much more they had to do to get this product to launch. And I sat down with her on day two, and I gave her a date. Um, and it was about eight months in the future. And I said, we will launch on this date. Um, and lo and behold, we launched on that date.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, basically, you know, come what may, uh, we were launching on that date. Um, and right. You know many decisions along the way that have to be made to make sure that you can deliver on that. Um, either adjusting, you have to obviously adjust along the way, um, or you know take into account that certain things may not be perfectly finished, but what is acceptable um, in order to finish. Um, yeah. And you know what what can what corners can be cut, um, or you know what things just are going to take a little more time and and uh, require a bit, a bit more work. So there's a lot of you know, political capital has been built up over the last couple of years um, allowed me that freedom and also allows me the bandwidth to run product as well so that it doesn't feel like engineering holds the product back. When we want to do our things, um, we work with the rest of the company to make sure that we meet their expectations. um, And then, you know, we still have time for our own, for our own stuff. so uh-huh. refactors and um, you know unit tests and automated tests and uh, performance testing and stress testing and all those great things that engineers love to do, uh, we make sure we have plenty of time for. So uh-huh. it's like some some creative uh, creative strategizing that I've done to to make that happen.
0: Uh-huh. So for any, um, let's say, prospective engineer that wants to join uh, your team, how would you describe maybe, you know, the cultural ethos, the sort of um, maybe the philosophy of, of how engineering or product operate um, under your leadership?
1: Good question. Um, I would say we are a health and wellness company, um, and that is – pervasive. So health and wellness of our people, health and wellness of our product, um, health and wellness of our code. Um, and so mm. we prioritize that um, sort of above all else. So, um, you know, we're not going to push a feature. We're not going to push um, a new deploy, you know, with, with new bug fixes if it's not, if it's not a, a positive or if it doesn't make us feel good. Um, we're not going to do it if we're not ready. Um, also, I'm not going to work you to the bone, <laughs> uh, get it done, um, because that's also not to my benefit or or your benefit. Um, it's not healthy. So really, it's it's about overall health. Um, our code, just like all code, has you know debt, um, you know tech debt, and um, you know things that we'd love to fix if we had time and, and things that we'd love to build if we have time um, And we take a little bit of time out of every week to sort of burn that down and, and work towards those big goals um, and uh, make sure that we maintain the health of the organism that, that is our you know our product. Uh, uh, if you don't work towards a healthy, healthy product all the time um it's it's going to get away from you and that's how you end up in like a really rat- bad situation where you basically and i've been there <laughs> you need to tell your leadership team not luckily not here but where you need to tell your leadership team like hey we need to take you know four five six months off um of developing new features and just fix what's broken um uh-huh. just Build something to make it uh, suitable for our current user base, um, or we can't scale anymore. We've fallen on our faces. Uh, we uh. need to come over and try something new. Um, I've been there. I spent a year building a you know a new product essentially to replace an old one that was that was antiquated. Um, it's not a good place to be, um, and it just requires daily maintenance. Um, so it's really about being healthy. Um, yeah. And, Yeah, I think that that's that's something that's really in our in our core, um, and it's it's what we want to present to the outside world too, which is that we want you to be healthy, right? Like the mirror is mm-hmm. all about resilience; it's all about getting in your fifteen-minute stretch class. If, if that's all you can do today, just get it in. You know, um, it takes no time at all. So, yeah, it's really just about you know the the small victories every day you can do to make sure that um, that everything stays well oiled.
0: Nice. Cool, Christy. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, yeah. I feel like I could we could sit here for hours, uh, <laughs> but but you're busy running uh, a company, so um, you know, appreciate it. Thank you so yeah. much.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast, produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us.
0: Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.